Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, friends. Wherever you're joining us, welcome to this month's Curious and Quirky. My name is Tim Boyd, uh, your host for this month's session. And as with most of our sessions, we're going to be discussing some of the most intriguing and the most insightful topics across the business industry uh, with the brilliant minds from the Caltech Executive Education. If you do have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you uh, during the session today. So make sure to put your thoughts, your comments, and your perspectives in the chat window, and we'll respond to you uh, during today's session. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. She is one of the most insightful marketing experts in the field today, who has a passion for helping companies unlock their potential by evolving their strategic marketing skills and building global managers with proven frameworks and tools, all while infusing her enthusiasm into everything that she does. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Mary Batia. Wow, Tim, thank you for that great introduction. I like that. So I have a question for all of you. Are you a adult? Are you playing board games or are you going to Disneyland without any kids? According to Toys R Us and others, there is a segment of adults who engage in activities that are normally for kids, but um, because these adults are looking for comfort and nostalgia during difficult times, they've been deemed adults. And this is a recent trend that um, really started to hit its stride during the pandemic. And uh, this segment, adults are contributing $9 billion to the toy industry, and they make up at least 25% of toy consumers. So a recent toy association survey found that 58% of us adults purchase a toy for themselves. And of those, 60% are buying board games or some type of a craft or building kit. And um, over 50% are buying collectibles and getting involved more in video games. So adults tend to pay more for items, which makes them really attractive and more profitable. So over the past couple of years, toy, toy makers are shifting and creating more products for these consumers. So for example, Mattel, they have created a line of Barbies that uh, dress like David Bowie for $105. There's a grown-up sized electric Razor scooter called Razor Icon that is $600. And then Lego sets are available for Back to the Future Time Machine. There's the Office, a typewriter, and then there's this large light bright set that you can buy for $100 that is based on Stranger Things and you can hang it on your wall as art. So if you're really feeling young at heart, Ann Rodriguez-Jones of Artful Living reports that there's adult camps. This is a growing trend in the travel industry. 
And it lets grown-ups relive their life-changing experience, but with craft cocktails instead of Kool-Aid. For example, Camp Wandawiga in uh, Elkhorn, Illinois, uh, looks something like it's out of Ralph Lauren. Uh, you wake up to the bugle call, beckoning guests to go and have coffee and pastries. Uh, and then you can play shuffleboard, tennis, basketball, uh, volleyball, canoeing, hiking, and even hatchet throwing. And leisure seekers... Uh, meanwhile, can fill their thermoses with Chardonnay and head down to the craft hut. So something for everyone in that. And then another example of an adult camp is Camp Powerment, which hosts retreats in Ojai, California and in the Poconos. And it challenges guests to embrace their um, identity outside of their occupation. So the camp typically appeals to powerful women with luxury digs and wine-drenched happy hours. And the biggest attraction with them is the cardinal rule that for the first 24 hours, you can't talk about what you do for a living. <laughs> so uh, what is there to learn from all of this? If toy companies and some of these other travel um, businesses typically focused on kids and continue to only focus on, you know, kind of the age of zero to 13, they would have missed this huge opportunity to serve a new segment that is young at heart, that of course are looking for that comfort and, and nostalgia, which is zero to 110 years old. So call is the pro need segmentation. Now, what does it mean to your business? If you're looking at your customers based on demographics, which are age, income, gender, and firmographics like size, sales, num you know, number of sales employees, you're looking for opportunities by using segmentation. That's where it's based on the attitudes, the behavior, even aspirations. So if you're in the um, medical device industry and you focus on size of hospitals, that's firmographics. But if you can switch that around and segment customers based on their tendency to adopt new technology, you might uncover that there's one segment that really wants to be on the cutting edge and another one that is maybe more conservative and likes to go with the tried and the true. And if you're in the finance industry, you know, are you typically focused just on high net worth or is there a segment of customers that prefer to delegate and they're willing to pay more to have somebody do that heavy lifting, whereas there's another segment that is really all about control and they are going to do most of the work themselves. So when you segment customers based on the underlying motives, uh, it gives you an advantage over your competitors and um, and it helps you address trends that, uh, that you might miss. So, uh, and that's what we're seeing definitely in the toy and the travel industry. So good luck. And now I want to introduce you to, I think, somebody that is probably a adult themselves uh, because he's always got crazy cool ideas <laughs> and he's fun to hang out with too. So here's our innovation guy, Brian Matamore. Well, Mary, you're, you're absolutely correct. I, I actually did a team building exercise uh, about a year and a half ago uh, and it was hatchet throwing. And and nobody nobody died. It was fun. And then also um, last night, I actually ordered. I can't believe I'm saying this. A ninety dollar backgammon set for a friend. It was the big version. But this you know this is adult you know kids adults here. So I couldn't agree more with what you said. Thank you. Today I want to talk about. Uh, this is part two of the time. 100 Best Inventions of the Year. Actually, uh, now this feature at the end of last year is um, there are 200 inventions. I guess we've gotten twice as creative and these inventions for are, are from all around the world. And rather than just doing random ones, I wanted to get a theme. And uh, the theme is around green energy here. And because batteries are so much in the news, you probably may have seen in uh, late October, the Department of Energy invested $2.8 billion dollars 
in uh, 20 U.S. battery companies to help us make us more energy efficient, right? Or uh, not be dependent on uh, out, uh, overseas sources for this. So I've got three batteries I want to share with you. Uh, before I do that, though, I, I, I want to give a nod to Elon Musk. And uh, of course, his battery technology has uh, helped us with electric cars, obviously. And the creative principle that I see when I see some of his interviews of how they got there was really as an engineer, they, they say, well, what are the first principles? And from an ideation standpoint, and creative standpoint in your company, the way to get there is very easy if you don't have an engineer on staff. It's really to say, what are the assumptions we've made about this industry, right? Or this project or whatever it is. So the questioning assumptions technique. So let me give it just a really quick uh, history of uh, batteries. You know, I don't know if you know, but in 1903, after 10 years of research and uh, almost 15,000 experiments, Edison uh, launched the nickel ion uh, storage battery. And it was developed at that time for what? For cars. It didn't turn out to be workable and efficient. The internal combustion engine kind of beat them out there, but uh, but it was used on submarines, et cetera. So what's interesting is that now um, Zilla Nanotechnology, it's a California-based firm, they actually have spent 10 years developing a silicon-based battery that uh, replaces the graphite in the in uh, traditional batteries, car batteries, uh, lithium-ion batteries. And so um, they were one of the firms that actually got $100 million from the Department of Energy to, to go scale up uh, on this battery. By the way, the graphite is, is in the anode, anode section, and it turns out that they, and, and, and by the 55,000 iterations to get there. So this was a 10-year thing, just like, like Edison. Uh, this battery will be five times lighter uh, and two times smaller than the ones with the graphite in them, and they'll increase energy capacity 20 to 20 to 40 percent. And with this uh, Department of Energy grant, they're scaling up their Washington factory. So that's battery one. All right. So let's look at battery two. Um, talk about questioning assumptions, right? If we think of a battery, it's got all this metal in there, right? Well, there's a the Swiss National uh, Lab, EMPA, um, has developed a battery, if you can believe this, it's, uh, it's water-activated disposable paper battery. So what they've done is they put uh, graphite in one. Um, the, the paper itself is, you know, sodium chloride salt-infused, and on either side you have sort of zinc ink, and the other side you have graphite ink, and you can activate this with water. And you say, okay, that's the nice kid experiment, but... Uh, but they, you can actually use this for smart labels, for tracking objects, environmental sensors, medical diagnostic devices. And the output is pretty good. It's 1.2 volts versus a traditional alkaline battery, which is 1.5 volts. All right. The third battery, this is, uh, I'll give a nod to uh, Peter here. This is from, from I, it's based on an IBM advance in chip technology. Um, this is the, two, IBM has developed the two uh, nanometer chip, right? So two man nanometers. So what that means is uh, you can get 50 billion with a B, 50 billion transistors, uh, basically in the space of your fingernail. Uh, so these transistors are about five atoms each, right? So what does that mean in terms of uh, batteries? Oh, by, what, by the way, the creative principle here is looking at upper limits, right? What's the upper limit, right? So um, they, um, they're projected to quadruple the life of cell phones right? And obviously also they'll slash the carbon footprint of data centers. Uh, SAMS, and this is not 
in the theory stage, this has gotten very practical. Samsung semiconductor, the Wheaties semiconductors, um, are battling it out to get this chip out by 2025. And the U.S. and Japan, uh, U.S. and Japan have created a research center to uh, develop two nanometer technologies. All right. So there we go. That's the, the green energy thing. I thought as a fun thing, Mary said I could take a minute of her time and do a fun energy thing. As we all know, the AI content creation programs, which I've talked about in a previous Curious and Quirky uh, episode, I thought it would be fun to do a Curious and Quirky poem about what? The Caltech Curious and Quirky pro podcast, right? So, I, so the question I put in there was write a poem about Caltech's futuristic Curious and Quirky podcast. The, there are six quatrains that came out of us. The first one didn't work because it tried to rhyme boast with podcast. That didn't work. But here they are. Exploring the unknown, a world of surprise, sparking conversations with questions so wise. The scientists, the sciences explored from biology to math, robotics and AI, a scientific path, a brilliant adventure, a journey to space, exploring new frontiers, a journey with grace. The podcast, a haven, a place to learn, thoughts and ideas to our minds they burn. The future awaits, a world so new, curious and quirky, Caltech's podcast, so true. So that, you know, came came in a in a flash, right? Less than a second that appeared. All right. So I think that was fun. That's the kid in me, right, Mary? All right. So here we go. Um, Alan uh, is next, and he's our uh, world-class expert on supply chain. Alan, you're up. Hey, well, thank you, Brian. That was just a really interesting uh, poem. I really appreciate that. I really have enjoyed listening to both you and Mary so far. I mean, seriously, who doesn't want to be a kidult? I mean, I seriously, Mary, I did notice that you uh, talked when you were talking about things that people pay a lot of money for. You said a word typewriter. Of course, that's a word my kids have no idea what it means anymore. But if anybody out there listening wants a uh, 1973 Smith Corona typewriter, give me a jingle. And I have, I have it for sale now for Nineteen hundred dollars. Uh, thanks, thanks to Mary's marketing expertise. Also, Brian, I, I just you with a hatchet just frightens the, the daylights out of me. But, but okay, it's what it is. And I do appreciate the automobile uh, discussion and, and the electric electric discussion. You know, electric cars are nothing new. And so I'm a manufacturing and supply chain guy. And I mean, the first Prius was not created by Toyota. It was it was uh, created by uh, Ford. And uh, and it was really an interesting. It was in 1899 the first uh, hybrid car was uh, created. And uh, and then by the way, Henry Ford's wife did not drive an internal combustion car. Claire drove in 1914. She drove an electric car because he built a few electric cars, believing that they were actually easier to operate for females than the uh, gas-powered cars that required somebody to get out and crank them. So they didn't have a lot of range, but we actually had uh, electric cars being produced in a uh, large uh, production facility as early as the early 1900s. So things go around. It reminds me of, of uh, history repeats itself. And that's what I want to talk about today, which is this thing we always refer to in supply chain is the bullwhip effect. And we wrote about this back in March of 2020. We said, look, uh, when we shut 
the, the global economy down and we shut down factories and we shut down businesses, that when once the, the, the pandemic is over, now factories are going to start up. And so you're going to struggle to get people, you're going to struggle to get material. And then after that's all done, then you're going to struggle to get transportation, containers, boats, ships, trains, uh, trucks. And then those companies are going to struggle. And so there's kind of this bullwhip effect that, you know, one, you get to a peak and then you can't ship because you can't get the truck. And then you finally get the trucks and then you can't get the drivers. And that bullwhip effect happens across the globe as a res- happened as a result of the, the uh, pandemic. But it's as clear a natural law as laws of physics, laws of gravity, laws of economics, uh, laws of human nature. It's as clear as any of those that this bullwhip effect impacts a, a lot of upstream and downstream in the supply chain uh, uh, sort of partners. Uh, so I'll give you a great example. And this example is about the uh, theater industry in New York City. And so if you ever want to go see great theater, everybody knows you go to London or you go to New York City. This is where you have the, the biggest number of shows, the highest budgets. By the way, if anybody ever wants to learn a little bit about the business side of Broadway, um, there's a number of great articles that have been written and some great books have been written. You know, ba- basically, you, uh, some playwright comes up with a great idea, uh, finds a, a money person. That money person then finds a lot of money, uh, mostly from wealthy uh, patrons that are don't seem to mind losing it. The the venture capital industry is almost 10 times more successful than Broadway is. And the venture capital industry will tell you that, you know, maybe one out of seven of their investments really make all their returns for them. Broadway is a, is a terrible business, but it's driven by something other than, than uh, just pure economics. Uh, so for every, you know, Cats or Rent or or uh, Phantom of the Opera that you have, you have hundreds of others that, that uh, never, ever return the capital that was invested in them. And so they too experienced the bullwhip effect. So what happened after the pandemic was over now, and all the shows have been shut down for nearly two years. Now, all of a sudden, this season, Broadway is just flooded with new shows. It was a great article in a, in a kind of a journal that a lot of the theater folks read in, in, uh, in uh, New York and around the country called Hyperallergic. And uh, this great writer actually goes through what has happened. And, and so guess what? So now everybody's coming. There's not enough theaters for all the pent-up shows. A, a lot of the uh, creative types, what they did in 2020 and 2021 was they came up with new shows in their heads and on paper. They couldn't produce them. They couldn't uh, staff them. They couldn't put them in a theater. They couldn't do anything, but they came up. And so there's now a backlog of shows ready to be produced, but there's a finite number of theaters. And so, by the way, the only entity in the entire supply chain of theaters and Broadway, the only entity in that whole food chain that makes any money is, uh, on, a, on a normal basis, is the theater owner. Because the theater owners get, you know, twenty to $50,000 a week rent for the theater, plus they get about 7% of the gross proceeds of the shows. And so they make money, their, their property taxes and everything are paid, whether, the, the, whether you know, the, the, the show is a, a good one or not. Nevertheless, now... There's not enough theaters, and so they're they're trying to jockey around to uh, use other you know second tier sort of theaters, even for first first tier uh, at least thought of first tier type of shows. And of course, now they need sets. So now you have all these sets. Guess what? During the pandemic, a lot of the set design companies owned you know by older families just said enough's enough, and they sold off all the equipment. So now there's not enough set production equipment to put on shows in Broadway. By the way, same thing is happening in, in London as well. And so now they're starting to rehab shows uh, and rehab old sets and refurbish old sets to be used. 
also, this is a testament to the innovation of human beings. They've now, you know, now there's a big push for those minimalistic sort of shows where you have just a few actors and you have minimalistic sort of sets. And it really drives the creative talent to make the talent become the show purely and a hundred percent and not and not just the pageantry of the show. So if anybody's ever seen Cats or Phantom of the Opera or Miss Saigon, you you know that the sets are extremely expensive and they're magnificent and they're wonderful. Well, if you can't get set designers and if you can't get the, the carpenters to build the sets and there's only so many old sets in warehouses that can be refurbished, you have to start thinking of innovative ways. And interestingly enough, it turns out some of these minimalistic sort of shows are now doing extremely well. In fact, there's some belief that because of the pandemic, more focus on Broadway will be in the next year to three years will be on the superiority of acting skills and the superiority in a minimalistic set than in the big pageantry sort of approaches of the last decade and a half. And so interestingly enough, the supply chain and the and the bullwhip effect within supply chain impacts not, not just factories, not just distribution companies, not just retailers, but it's come to Broadway in a big way. And the geniuses and the creative talents of Broadway are starting to figure out by questioning the very fabric of what a show is and finding other ways, um, sometimes a compromised approach and sometimes a completely new thought of way to present entertainment because of the fact that they can't get the carpenters, they can't get the lighting designers, they can't, they can't get the things that they need to put on the types of shows that they used to think they wanted. And as one producer said um, in the in the article that I'm referring to, uh, said, now we're looking at talent, talent on the stage more than talent in the producer's head and talent in the carpentry shop. We're looking at talent on the stage that are standing there on the stage. And I think that is proof that sometimes good things come out of bad things in a magnificent, wonderful sort of way. So, By the way, um, they're also not raising ticket prices very much, a little bit, but not much, because again, they run this economic model that uh, that's very precarious to start with, and particularly in a recession and an inflation environment, uh, the disposable incomes are less. So Broadway, to their credit, are uh, trying to keep a, a lid on the already exorbitantly high um, uh, ticket prices they pay, but they're really trying to focus on talent to bring people in. Supply chain never ends. Now, I'm done with that. So now what I'd like to do is I'd uh, like to turn you over to Peter. Peter, take it away. Thank you so much. Super interesting, actually, uh, to hear a, a real application of the bulwark work effect. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're, we're now at the beginning of 2023, right? And this is a time when people reflect on what happened last year and try to anticipate what's going to happen this year. And as you peruse articles, you often see trends, right? Trend analysis. So this year, what I thought I'd do is collect these and analyze them. And I collected trends published by 33 sources. So these would include companies like Andreessen Horowitz has put out something, Accenture, Deloitte, Etsy, Forbes obviously has a lot of articles. IBM put out a forecast uh, of trends. Uh, Goldman Sachs, Gartner, Forrester. So collected these all up, these 33 sources, and uh, found that within each, uh, they typically have an average of eight trends. Um, so that uh, yielded a pool of 115 trends. 
And uh, these can be broken out into groups. So uh, the group that I, you know, this uh, sample that I was looking at um, had uh, 55 trends related to retail. It had 48 related to e-commerce, uh, 44 on technology. There are a bunch on macro trends, you know, what's going on in the global economy with geopolitics in Ukraine and, you know, trade conflict with China. So there's that. There were a lot of uh, trends related to Web3 and the rise of metaverse um, and virtual stores and things of that nature. B2B sales and marketing, there's a lot of innovation happening in that space. Then you have uh, just general digital marketing, and there's a lot of stuff happening with what they call MarTech, with uh, kind of automated marketing. And then we have trends related to work and social, right? This whole debate over going back to work. AI got has gotten attention. And then we have uh, ESG, environmental, uh, social considerations, and how companies um, are being forced to do, address these more and more. And then customer experience, healthcare, and sales. So those were the, the big categories. What I thought I would do, since my focus is on platforms and marketplaces and ecosystems, I'd pull out a few and give you a flavor of uh, a couple of these trends. So uh, Shopify has uh, put out one. Shopify, as you may know, is the, uh, the platform that over 1.4 million merchants use, right, to do their digital uh, sales, um, they have, you know, they're worth, because they have such a purview of the market, worth looking at. They focused on a number of things, including um, the, the the changing nature of how your presence on the internet is tracked. So they, they say the cookies are out, right? So there have been regulatory uh, issues and, and blowback from customers saying, hey, we don't want um, all of our data captured. So data privacy regulations are having a big impact on cookies. So first party consumer data is in. So companies are having to figure out new ways of capturing uh, this first party data. So we're going to see that uh, increase in 2024, according to Shopify. Andreessen Horowitz uh, had actually 25 trends. One of them was focused on the unprecedented labor shortages. Uh, we talk about inflation and uh, the economy weakening, but it, you know we still have a very strong uh, you know demand for labor, and there's labor shortages all over. Uh, and Alan just um, alluded to some of them that are impacting the uh, theater uh, industry. But what they point out is, is that this shortage is leading to a wave of new labor marketplaces. And in fact, um, with the rise of COVID, there was a new platform that emerged that helped match hospitals to nurses. And that company is now worth $1.6 billion. So really interesting to see the responses to uh, shortages leads to, you know, innovations in being able to locate and match workers to where they're needed. There's a consulting firm that called Kroll. They put out uh, trends analysis and they focused on the growing regulation and social pressure for companies to track carbon emissions. And uh, how does this get manifest um, in the platform or marketplace world? Um, I just recently purchased a ticket to Frankfurt and I noticed, and I think I was using um, Expedia, there was a little drop down where I could compare the different flights and their carbon emissions. And I think we're going to see this more and more 
in uh, marketplaces where marketplaces are not just going to reveal the prices, the quantities, the quality of the product, but they're also going to have to reveal the carbon emissions associated with purchasing those products. Another trend is around healthcare. This is by Forrester. Forrester um, is, is pointing out the fact that um, big retail outlets are doing more and more healthcare business. We've seen these little clinics pop up inside these retail outlets. Um, they claim that Walmart, Walgreens, CVS will double the amount of healthcare business that they do in 2023. And then finally, uh, loyalty is important, right? It's uh, better to keep a customer than try to acquire a new one. So lots of attention to how do you uh, build strong loyalty programs and innovate in this space. So innovation around loyalty. And we're seeing uh, companies like Starbucks begin to dabble into Web3 as new ways of, of using tokenization around loyalty and uh, building new communities, leveraging these new Web3 technologies. So, so those are a few of the trends. It's really interesting to dig in systematically. It gives you a big picture uh, collectively what all of these organizations that uh, are, are putting out in terms of trends. So uh, lots of interesting things that are going to happen uh, this year and beyond. So with that, let me uh, turn it over to our next speaker. So take it away. He's an uh, expert in space and uh, does a lot of project management in this area. So Tom? I want to talk about something that happened over the, the Christmas break. When Southwest started uh, about 51 years ago, it really was a simple intrastate airline that was really meant to connect three cities across the state of Texas, uh, catering towards low-budget travelers. Now, there, at the time, there were a variety of other airlines that were really catering towards the elite, uh, those who had a lot of money, to be able to do things like air travel, which was kind of, at the time, something uh, that only uh, the, the elite typically did. So it really tried to cater towards the low-budget travelers. And its goal really was simple, to make air travel accessible everybody. So it was kind of a disruption, uh, a disruptor in the industry back when it first started. Now, a lot's changed since then over the course of 51 years, but Southwest has really tried to stay true to some of its founding principles. Number one, they consistently try to offer uh, extremely low fares for their constituents. They also traditionally use second-tier airports to overall reduce costs of renting that space and landing and taking off from those different locations. Uh, if you've always seen the Southwest Airlines fleet, it's traditionally the same single aircraft type, which overall reduces training for actual pilots so they can fly on any single aircraft in the fleet. Uh, the maintenance crews, uh, they don't have to train on a variety of different aircraft and understand those things, as well as the actual crew themselves are all familiar with it, uh, with the same type of aircraft. The scheduling for Southwest has been a bit of a challenge recently, uh, but the, really the goal is to maximize flight time by minimizing the turnaround times by these kind of quick turns, regional airports, smaller spaces, and they also have these regional point-to-point -point routes uh, that are really the short and in-demand routes that try to operate at a very high frequency to maximize thoroughfare and people going from point to point. Now, despite all of its successes and the prominence of Southwest Airlines, they found themselves in the news over the Christmas holiday break really behind an unfortunate narrative. When a severe weather storm really crippled most of the United States and many airlines operations across the, across the U.S., many hopeless travelers witnessed I'll say thousands and thousands of flights a day be canceled literally right before their eyes, significantly impacting their personal holiday plans. Now, the worst day uh, statistically was December 23rd with a whopping 5,934 uh, flight cancellations. 
across the U.S. Now, it'd be one thing if the canceled flights were effectively spread amongst the other carriers, but unfortunately, Southwest took the biggest hit. Southwest's number of canceled flights accounted for about 87% of the flights canceled nationwide over the course of about a week, which really left many passengers reeling, employees scrambling, and really even the Secretary of Transportation calling for an investigation. Now, now Southwest in many areas uh, has failed, uh, or failed in this case in many different areas, but it's a trend, uh, to use Peter's terminology, that the data has been showing for actually quite some time. So according to some data from the U.S. Bureau of Transportation Statistics, Southwest's cancellation rate has more than tripled in the last decade. In addition, it has experienced more cancellations uh, than the majority of its competitors. And it's not only the cancellation data. Uh, the data set also highlights that Southwest's on-time percentage and on-time metrics are actually lower than it's been in almost a decade as well. So, so what really happened? What's really going on here? And did a winter storm really cripple one of the biggest, lowest cost carriers in the world? Not really, and not precisely. So many thought leaders and industry pundits have been analyzing and really dissecting this narrative for the last couple of weeks, as you can imagine. But when you dissect all the information, there's a few consistent conclusions that come out of those, um, of those narratives as well. Uh, I'll start with uh, Captain Casey Murray, who's currently the president of the Southwest Airlines Pilot Association. And he claims that the biggest issue right now is some of Southwest's business practices. Southwest scheduling and software system uh, is really one of the biggest culprits. I'm sure you've heard that in the news and a variety of articles. Their ability to track and reroute flights was crippled with the massive quantity of flight cancellations. Their outdated software traditionally would allow them to do that for a, a fleet maybe the size, a quarter or a third of the size of its fleet to die, uh, today. But whenever the massive amounts of cancellations got hit uh, or were realized, they just couldn't keep up with that massive quantity which really put the system in lockdown. Um, unfortunately, this system hasn't really changed in about 30 years, uh, even though the leadership has been consistently informed and warned by its employee unions, uh, but no real investment or effort has been put into uh, making modifications to evolve that technology. Secondarily, the way the company's leadership chose to handle its communication outreach was not really efficient or very effective either. Uh, firstly, there was little to no interaction with leadership in the public early on, which allowed a horrifying narrative to emerge about the personal experiences of thousands of stranded passengers and employees whose precious Christmas vacations had been ruined. And we all know that if you can if you can get in front of those narratives, it's a lot better than actually having to play catch up behind thousands and thousands of stories with your personal brand being impacted along the way. Now, when leadership did finally offer their thoughts, they appeared to almost avoid taking responsibility. They ended up blaming the weather, the FAA, and some pundits and some uh, investigators have actually claimed that they've actually gone as far as to blame some of their employees for some of the issues that they found as well, which isn't necessarily great leadership when it comes down to leading an organization through crisis management. Uh, so the company leadership has consistently been apologetic, but we all know apologies really only go so far. So take Conrad Stoll, for example, who's a 66-year-old retired construction worker in Missouri who was planning to fly back from Kansas City to Los Angeles for his dad's 90th birthday party. But his flight was actually canceled, and he won't actually get to see his 88-year-old mother either. And he's not quite sure that by the next time he actually gets home to see them, that they're actually going to be alive to see him. Or the Berger family, who were supposed to be on a once-in-a-lifetime family cruise from San Diego to Mexico, but their flights were, and their subsequent rerouted flight were also canceled 
leaving their Christmas vacation train, uh, memories tarnished as well. Now, these special moments that many people lost will never be forgotten. And, you know, they may forever haunt the airline with certain passengers. Now, I would argue that the only good thing the Southwest has going for them is that they have enough historical goodwill, execution promise, and also generally a, a strong brand uh, that may allow them to cushion, uh, give them enough cushion to effectively weather this storm, and no pun intended. Uh, more than, say, Spirit Airlines, who has a bad rap, uh, or maybe would provoke the attitude of, oh, they did it again. I can't say that I'm surprised, right? People don't say that about Southwest because of the strong brand that they offer and they've offered for quite some time. So how can we prevent things like this from happening in the future? And most companies, especially airlines, cannot really over an IT infrastructure and they need to quit spending money on all, only the glamorous aspects of the business, you know, only those that are in the public eye. If the fundamental pieces and a framework of your business are not well, a well-oiled machine and you're not investing under the hood as well, you're really planting the seeds for future underperformance and potential future failures as well. So we need to spend the money and reinvest in the business as often as we can and don't wait until it's too late. Uh, really the strong business, uh, the strong policies and business practices are really the best prevention for future failures. We also need to ensure that we embrace the service paradox by providing such a magnificent crisis management recovery plan of action that those affected are more impressed with your response rather than the failure itself. So that's something that a lot of service industries are actually leaning towards looking into that concept of managing a crisis so well that people don't forget about it. They don't uh, have much of an issue with the actual failure itself. And lastly, I would argue, uh, making sure that we listen and learn from our employees uh, is just as important as listening to the voice of the customer. Everyone's caught up on the voice of the customer, and I can understand that, and I can appreciate that. But the employees are the crux of your organization and the blood uh, lifeline uh, of your team. So leaders have to listen to their frontline leaders, especially when they've been telling the same story for over three decades. And if you're not creating the environment where employees feel safe to bring up those major concerns or issues, then you have a very different problem. Uh, and you've basically built a toxic culture that will only be that will only perpetuate these future disconnects and failures until it's seriously uh, addressed. So overall, though, this complex failure has really led Southwest to potentially realize a loss of almost $900 million. Now, one could reframe in a positive way and offer that they just spent $900 million educating their organization about how not to do things in the future. But however you frame the situation, the negative publicity the lost memories and the feeling of embarrassment and abandonment most of its employees felt will be difficult to make up for in the future, especially in the short term. This is a long road investment that Southwest has to make in order to prove its performance. So the question is, is this really the beginning of the end for Southwest? Have they had a good 51 year run, maybe a little bit longer, or will they finally listen to those around them and realize that they can't rewrite their past? but they can surely start fresh by turning a new page and writing a new chapter by learning from their previous mistakes. So with that, I wanna make sure that we invite all the speakers back to the fold for a few minutes of follow-up conversation. Thank you, that, I really like that. And you know, I, I like your point about voice of, of the employee is, is really critical too. Brian, I have to ask, what was, your, um, what was the platform that you used or the software to, to generate such an incredible poem? The poem is Playhouse OpenAI. I've been I've been playing around with it and having it write songs. I, the uh, head of uh, the business school at TCU was just made president of TCU, so I sent him a song 
a poem, an ad, and an essay about him being named president. And I got to say, I was so bowled over and so impressed, especially by the essay. I guess it's searching the web and talked about his background and on and on and on. It was extraordinary. And I think the ramifications of this will mean you think you've got a lot of content now. Wait, wait till people are using these programs. Oh, my gosh. Brian, uh, to that conversation, uh, last last month we talked about, you know, the the future of plagiarism and using these platforms and things like that. There was that first case. I think there was a professor who realized that their student had been using this to write an entire essay and they actually called them out for plagiarism using these chat AI bots, even though technically it's not plagiarism, I guess, in the in the historical sense, but they actually called them out as something that wasn't necessarily the right way to do things. So we are starting to see the recognition that these software are there and people aren't actually doing the real work behind the scenes. Yeah, I know I know several students have gotten A's when the professor didn't know, number one. And number two, a lot of these will not show up on the plagiarism uh, programs because they're created, you know, the original creations. So it's going to be really interesting and tough for professors. That's one of the reasons I sent it to the TCU president, because this is going to affect uh, education for sure. Yeah, maybe I was just thinking about maybe Southwest could have used a little bit of AI. <laughs> Probably could. Maybe they will. You, you know, I, uh, Tim, I really appreciate that that analysis. It's one of the best analysis analyses of what I what happened at, at Southwest, and this is a, a B school case study uh, that will be used for for generations. This is also proof that what happens when a company gets behind technologically, and, and is in this case in IT systems. You know, they've got almost a billion dollars of losses as a result of this, and pr- realistically, probably a lot more if you can monetize or calculate loss reputation and things like that. The IT systems that they never invested in, they just invested in them. And and they could have done this for a, for a fourth. They could have probably rebuilt all of those IT systems for well less than a fourth of what they just spent. Uh, I've actually had clients who, by not investing in IT systems, found themselves so uncompetitive. The origins of this could be organizational issues, but there's certainly a cultural shift at Southwest. There's been lots of discussions about how Southwest moved from an environment where every station manager, almost every employee, saw Herb Kelleher in the field you know, once a year or, or more than that to where now it's basically run by people who used to be the CFO, now the CEO and things like that. And so the cost containment mentality, which always existed, but it existed in Southwest. And I think you pointed out very well, it existed because they were focused on efficiency as a way of containing cost. And they forgot about the people side and they for- ultimately forgot about, uh, and so they changed it to pure cost reduction instead of instead of efficiency and improvement. And that, that has hurt them. Can they afford to make these investments? Uh, and can they get the can they get the respect back from the employees? This is uh, this is to be seen. I think that any turnaround business professional would say the chances of doing that with the current leadership team are probably very slim. Yeah, I think you'll see a significant change in leadership here in the near future. So, if I, if, you know, the, the, everybody's involved in this one, including the board of directors, for not you know not asking and questioning why aren't we seeing investment in IT? I mean, the sense you know the, we talked about this in one of the other curious and quirkies and that and that uh, the airlines have gone from just transporting people to really helping people make connections in, and on a variety of levels and that's why we always said Southwestern American Airlines ought to be buying Zoom 
because it's just a way of helping people make connections, just like traveling is. And for some reason, Southwest missed the, the cultural transformation that was necessary. And I thought you just did a spectacular job of outlining that. And uh, I, I hope somebody from Southwest has li- listened to what you said today. Well, I hope I appreciate that. Uh, I really do. And, and I, I hope that they'll turn the ship around. Um, we can't. We don't want to lose them either. So. Well, we all we all hate to we all hate to lose those iconic companies. I mean, I'm still sad over the demise of Kodak. Yeah, that's true. That's true. These are companies that have that have struggled and and or gone out of business, and and really were all self inflicted wounds. But I'm a big believer that you know even when certain companies do go under, significant more innovation pops up and new realizations are made, and they basically re- replace is not the right word, but. Uh, they're succeeded by additional companies offering different services and different frames of, uh, of reference, and also uh, products that are nearly just as good, if not slightly uh, more modified. So I, I think overall, it's a good thing to hash things out. But but again, I hope that they can turn around because like you said, this is something that was clearly avoidable, something that's going to be in the, the B-School cases for, for quite some time. And I, I assume that a few heads will roll for the time being, and then uh, they'll kind of start fresh uh, under new management perspective. So. All right, friends. Well, we're at the top of the hour. Appreciate the, the time. Appreciate the discussion. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys all back here uh, in, in, uh, in about a month. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh, yeah, Take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.